Welcome to The Metamorphic Mind, the podcast where I talk about my life and philosophies in hope of getting people to think differently and to improve their lives. In this episode, I will be talking about my life's journey and relating it to the larger idea that life is challenging for everyone, but that does not need to stop you from achieving your goals. I will talk about negative habits that persist after they make sense and how to start addressing them. I will discuss actions in terms of pressing a button. And finally, I will talk about motives, like the last episode and how it relates here. While listening, I want you to feel empowered and encouraged to make the most out of your life. You are all that you need to make that a reality. My parents had my older brother when they were 19, and four years later, I was born. Having a child at 19 isn't that young, but my parents didn't have their life together at this point to support children, so my, my brother and I grew up very poor. And I'm sure it didn't help their finances to divorce a year after I was born. Uh, for my dad, I honestly don't know if he had any aspirations in life. I think he believed he wouldn't live to his 20s, so he had no plans until my brother was born and had something to live for. He worked as a firefighter, but would eventually get into construction. For my mom, she took about 12 years to complete her undergraduate and graduate program. Otherwise, she worked at various homeless shelters or cut hair. Neither one of them made substantial money for most of my childhood. There were also multiple recessions, which I am also sure didn't help their financial situation. The custody agreement between my dad and my mom was that my brother and I would see my dad most weekends and during the summers. Otherwise, we would live with our mom. During the school year, I would have to wake myself up, get dressed, and walk myself to the bus stop. I had been doing that since second grade because my mom had to work, so I had to be responsible for getting myself to school. I wasn't taught to take showers often, so I would sometimes go a few days or even a week without showering. Many mornings, I wouldn't have any clean clothes and would have to go to the laundry room to pick out what smelled or looked the least dirty before running the five minutes it took to get to the bus stop. I would go to school to learn and to eat the free breakfast and lunch I was served. When I got home, I would make myself a bowl of cereal and watch Word Girl until I got bored, or my mom made me go outside to play. I had a bike, there were trees to climb, and we used to burn our trash in our yard, so finding items to use as swords and axes against the dandelions was easy. I would then spend my weekends with my dad. My dad worked construction and would often bring my brother and I along with him to his jobs. I remember being told to wake up at 6 or 7 each morning to go do odd jobs with my dad. I would have my lunch of two cinnamon pop-tarts around noon and then beg to go home until 5 p.m. when my dad had planned to go home for that day. When I wasn't forced to work, I would play on my dad's PlayStation 2 or go play with the tadpoles behind our house. My dad was leasing the property at the time and I remember crying when I learned that he filled in the pond for his landlord. We eventually moved and got a better house, and that was right around the time that I moved in with my dad for a few years. My dad now owned his own construction company at this point, but was still getting shitty jobs or spending his money on cigarettes or beer or both. Either way, he apparently didn't have the money to buy me snacks, and I wasn't allowed to touch his. He loved ranch Doritos and would only share them on special occasions. But I knew not to touch his honey buns, nutter butters, or deli meats because those were strictly for his lunch. My stepmom would make me lunch and dinner every day, as neither of my parents knew how to cook, let alone teach me how to make my meals. When I wasn't fed, my only options really were to make a bowl of cereal or to put a pepperoni roll in the microwave if we had any left. In the mornings before school, I would sit in my dad's smoke-filled office while he worked on his next construction gig and listened as he talked. Sometimes he would include how stressed he was and 
and how little he was being compensated for his next job, or about the bills that were piling up. I also remember that he would constantly be low on gas and would make comments like, I hope we make it, until we reached the next gas station. Anytime I saw that refuel light, fear would wash over me because what if we ran out of gas? Would we be stranded? Would my dad get pissed and start yelling? I had no way of knowing that he probably had someone he could call to give us gas or some other solution that wouldn't take more than an hour to fix. But I had no concept that things could be okay. All I knew is that no gas equals my dad being anxious and that having that thought was very unproductive to my mind. I knew I was poor, but I didn't really feel poor, at least at the start of my life, but I remember this one time when I was in the store with my mom, and I honestly couldn't tell you what I asked for. A pack of cards, a candy bar, something very small that was maybe a dollar or so. And my mom said what she always had said, maybe later. Later never came, and it was then that things finally started to connect in my mind. My mom getting angry at me for asking how many tours it would take to go to Disney, having to wear the same clothes for years after they stopped fitting me, our phones and internet getting shut off frequently, my dad forgetting my birthday one year. Only then did it click that I was poor and that I shouldn't ask for nor expect things. Around the time that I was 15, my mom finished her master's and got a job as a nurse. She made a lot more money and was able to buy more things. We got better cars, bigger houses, and newer clothes. But by this point, the mentality of being poor still controlled my actions, especially because she never really talked about how we were able to afford things now, so I continued not to ask for anything or go places with the same fear of not being able to pay for things or risk burdening my parents with my financial responsibility. My older brother and I would talk to our younger brother about how he was spoiled because of how much they were able to afford for him. But now I see that poverty wasn't the only thing that can hurt a person. I am not the only one who has suffered. 11 million children in America live in poverty. One out of 15 kids witness domestic violence between their guardians. 400,000 children live in the foster system in America. And that's only scratching the surface of what people have to go through. I can talk about these issues and how awful they are and how they shouldn't happen, which they're awful and shouldn't happen but I have to wonder if there is more I can do. I think everyone deserves to have their story be heard and to feel validated that their life was challenging and unfair. But then what? Those people continue to live their lives without help. Thus, they continue being unsupported and nothing really changes. Instead, I'd like to focus on the path forward. If all the kids living in shitty situations grew up to be shitty adults, the world would only get worse. I want to be one of the people that overcome their upbringing and become something more. I want to contribute to the good in humanity so that people don't have to experience the bad things that I have. We're human. We adapt and overcome. It is in our nature to persist and grow even when we are beaten down. So how do we persist and start to grow after we have left a bad situation? The first component of this that I would like to discuss is mindset. Like I shared in my story, I continued to believe and viscerally feel poor, even though I wasn't. The fear that I felt when I went out to dinner or if I needed to ask for replacement shoes that had worn out was numbing and, and very real. Even though I could pay for things, I still felt like I couldn't. That mindset far outlasted when it was useful for me to have it. And you may have not heard me. 
The mindset was useful for me to have. Back when I was poor, it was beneficial for me to believe my parents couldn't buy things because they couldn't. If I believed otherwise, I would have asked them for more things and wonder why my parents kept getting angry at me. I can't imagine the guilt and pain of having to constantly tell your child that you can't buy things for them. So instead, and this doesn't mean that it's right, they lash out because it's easier. Therefore, it is much safer and more comfortable for me to internalize that I am poor, because if I don't, I will get lashed out at, and that's not fun for anyone. However, being poor isn't the only feeling that a person can internalize. Someone with an emotionally manipulative parent may internalize that their parents' needs are more important than theirs. And this person may even wonder later in their life why they can never seem to focus on their needs. So these mindsets can follow us past when they made sense to have. Psychologists call this concept a maladaptive coping mechanism. It's when a behavior, action, or belief that had previously benefited us now hurts us. And I liked learning about this idea because it got me thinking about the good that my mindset has brought me. I can say that it's infuriating to still feel like I can't buy things when I have more than enough money to pay for things. But it feels more gentle and understanding to think about why I'm angry and remind myself that those beliefs are old friends. At the same time, those thoughts have overstayed their welcome and it's time to adopt new ways of thinking. And even if you don't realize it, knowing that your mindset can be tainted by your past is a great first step towards changing it. Because now you will be able to recognize, oh, I impulsively hoard food because there was a stint of time where I only had bread and fruit to eat, or man, I, I still get scared to ask my partner about their day because my ex used to pick fights whenever I did that with them. Once you identify what beliefs and behaviors aren't working for you anymore, you can start working towards replacing them with behaviors and thoughts of your choice. Which brings us to the second aspect of the path forward, our actions. Like our mindsets, there can be rituals and habits that persist from those negative times. Maybe I always go to my room when I am upset, even though the only thing I want to do is talk to my roommate about what upset me. Maybe I always get home and take a nap because my mom would leave the house a few hours after I got there and I would rather sleep than interact with her. Unfortunately for this discussion is that there are countless habits that we can adopt and saying, just do this, would ignore the complexities that come from different people learning their habits in vastly different situations. Therefore, each of us will have to pay attention to how we are acting and in what situations we are acting the same way if we don't want to keep going through the motions of life. What you need to do to address your situation is specific to you and will depend on what negative aspects you have kept from your old situation. For our habits, it's often not effective to just tell yourself not to do those things. Rather, we have to figure out an alternative to replace those behaviors with. Like I said before, if I get into arguments with my roommate, and my first instinct is to go to my room to avoid talking, that's something I can work towards replacing. In this case, I can go out and have that talk with my roommate. It will probably be awkward and maybe a little heated, but a lot of things are skills that we have to simply practice to get good at. So even if this conversation goes poorly with my roommate, or even if all of the conversations I have with my roommate don't go how I want them to, I'm still getting better at conversing and asserting my needs every time I do them. And for other examples, your alternative actions don't need to be anything fancy. Simply disrupting what you normally do is often all that it takes to change. Another aspect of our actions is the binary, do I do something or do I not do something? When I have something that I want to do, 
do I tend to do that thing or not? I struggle with pushing that button. My wife and I always talk about this idea of a button. The button represents if I am working on a task. So going back to the dishes, there would be a dishes button. When the dishes button is active, I am doing the steps that it takes to get my dishes clean. I need to go to the kitchen, I need to start the water, make sure that my dish wand is full of soap and that my dishwasher and drying rack are empty. I can then start actually washing the dishes, turning on the water, putting on cleaning gloves if the dishes are looking extra gross that day, and start going to town on the ickies. Slowly, that dishes button starts to flicker and I lose my interest in doing the dishes, and it becomes much harder to continue. Maybe I have spent 40 minutes on the dishes in the sink, and I look behind me and there are dishes on top of the oven. Yeah, there's a good chance that I will want to save those for another button push some other day in the near future. Sometimes you push through because you want a clean kitchen or need the dishes for your next meal. All are valid reasons to continue washing the dishes and, and all the more power to you. Another aspect of the button is distractors. If I have pushed the button to wash dishes and my wife asks me to mow the lawn, sometimes that button press doesn't transfer over. Maybe I had everything ready to go and I was just about to turn the water on. That's a difficult ask to make me shift what I'm doing. Through the years of my wife and I working together and learning how to function better as people, she learned that when I have a button pushed, she will do her absolute best to keep all those exciting thoughts she has saved until later. And I also learned to verbalize to her when I'm trying to focus on one activity and to please hold her thoughts until after I'm done, or I find a place to stop. It's not just my wife that will stop my button presses, though. Maybe my dog eats at 3 p.m. every day, and even though I had everything ready to wash the dishes, feeding my dog becomes the priority at 3 p.m. Or maybe I realize that the trash needs to go out, or it won't be collected until next week, and that becomes the priority. Those moments can suck, and it's normal to not enjoy having to switch when you are ready to put your efforts into something else first. Just do your best. It's all you can do. There will be times when you simply are not able to do the dishes exactly when you're ready to. As long as you keep attempting to push that button each day, the dishes will get done. So we talked about the button and how it functions, how it normally fades, and how there can be outside influences on it. What about pushing the button in the first place? For me, this has been the hardest part. Once I am doing the thing, I'm there. You know, I, but to actually initiate the task can be difficult. I mentioned mental friction in my last episode, but we will explore it more today. Let's start with the word friction, because that's really the important piece here. Imagine that you ran out of gas 100 feet away from the gas station. You think to yourself, man, pushing my car is probably going to be tough, but it's only 100 feet away, and you've been doing squats, so how hard can it be? Anyways, you, you put the car into neutral and take off the brake, because you know that you aren't strong enough to push a parked car when its brake is also on. However, you have seen people push their cars, so you are confident you can get the car moving if you try hard enough and as long as it's in neutral. So with two feet planted, you start putting your weight forward and slowly, very slowly, the car starts to roll forward. What you realize is that the more speed you pick up, the easier it is to move the car. At first, you were really having to heave this car forward, but now it's actually not more difficult than normal running or maybe running through water. but. Moving it is ultimately manageable. You are coming up to the gas pump, so you quickly hop into the front seat and coast into the spot. You push the brake to stop, put your car into park, and then you are able to get gas. Doing other tasks can be thought of this way too. First, you want to start by taking off the brakes 
and putting your car into neutral. This is anything that is slowing your ability to start. Getting your room clean to have people over or filling up the dishwasher to wash dishes. Then you will start pushing. It's the hardest at the very beginning to get some momentum. But as that builds, it gets easier and easier to keep going. You will then apply the brakes when you have reached your destination or let that button naturally flicker and turn off. Friction is what makes starting an activity difficult. Sometimes there are barriers that are more like parking brakes that completely halt our ability to get started. But when you have gotten started, it's fairly easy to continue going. I said earlier that friction is the most important part about the idea of mental friction. I think a runner-up is momentum. Momentum in our everyday lives is notably different than our car example. If I'm trying to work out, not only is the middle of my workout going to be easier than the start of it, it's actually going to be easier for me to even go to the gym in the first place. Momentum builds in our ability to overcome the initial friction of our activities. In our car example, assuming you had to keep pushing your car places for some reason, it would be like the car is getting lighter and lighter every time you get it moving. And soon you start pushing the car without even realizing that you're exerting yourself to do so. And I get that these concepts might be hard to fully understand until you have built momentum and see it in yourself. But keep this in mind. You will see that it gets easier and that overcoming the friction is more possible every time you do it. The final aspect to moving forward is our motive. Why do you want to change? It's often not enough to ask what I want to do. I also need to ask why do I want to do that? Because if I don't know my motive for changing, there will be nothing fueling me to change. I talked about this idea more in depth in the last episode, but it also applies here and probably 10,000 other situations too. We all want things, but taking the time to think through why we want them can help us to get motivated to pursue our passions. If someone says to grab a bottle of water, I might just be like, whatever, I don't really want to do that. But if they told me there's a fire starting and we need water to put it out, I'm grabbing as much water as I can. For me, I started with the prompt, I should do my podcast because... And I finished that sentence many, many times. I came up with all the reasons I could think of for podcasting that I can look back at any time to remind myself why I wanted to do this in the first place. In my reasons, I listed working for myself, being there for my family, and fostering my creativity. All great things and valid reasons for me wanting to podcast. By making this list for ourselves, we give ourselves ammunition towards working for our goals. We are building up resistance against falling back into our old ways of being. After making this list and reflecting a little, I then finished the sentence, if I didn't do podcasting, then. I asked myself this, to know what I or what others would lose if I choose not to follow my passion. Understanding both what I will gain and what I will lose allows my passions to become my priority. I also need to remind myself about what I wrote or thought about because life is very good at distracting me and I will forget if my attention stays off my list for long enough. If I'm able to learn about my mindset, my actions, and my motives, I am well on my way to being able to take control over my life. This knowledge gives me the ability to see what I'm doing in it and evaluate if it's working for me. I'm able to recognize old habits that may be hurting me and then I can start thinking about ways to replace them. Through thinking about my motives often, I'm able to persist even when life tries to distract me. I'm then able to create a new way of thinking and acting as long as I know my motivation for wanting to change. And even if I grew up poor or with neglectful parents or whatever the situation may be, I still have the power to overcome my past and be the person that I want to be. Until next time, peace. Hello again.
I wanted to give an after message for those people still experiencing the worst of their lives. Please remember that your life is your own. People may intend you harm and want to stop your flower from growing, but don't let them. No one deserves to hold on to hate that isn't theirs. You deserve love and joy and to not be burdened by what you're going through. Life is cruel sometimes, and I'm sorry for that, but you can make it through. Look out for yourself, and when you are able to move away from the shade in your life, put your energy towards growing yourself. Your plant has been left in harsh winters for potentially your whole life. It will take some time and care to really get your roots in, but by watering yourself as often as you can, you'll soon see yourself thriving. Believe in yourself. You can do this.